Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the SportsMap podcast where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. Today we have a world-renowned expert in athletic groin pain and ACL injuries joining us all the way from Ireland in Edna King. Edna is the Head of Performance Rehabilitation with the Sports Surgery Clinic in Ireland where he's working at the cutting edge in methodology for hip and groin injury prevention and rehabilitation. Now before we get started with today's chat, I encourage you to head over to our website at sportsmap.com.au to see all of our upcoming events. These courses do include uh, two masterclass workshops uh, with today's guest in Edna King, where we'll be doing uh, one two-day course on athletic groin pain and the other two-day course on ACL rehabilitation and return to sport decision-making. These courses are coming to Perth, Melbourne and Sydney in February 2020. They will be smaller class-sized events so we can get plenty of practical applications and great discussions going on. So for that reason, we do have very limited spots and they're filling up quickly. So if you are keen to hear what Edna has to say, uh, make sure you get on board that one quickly. We also have the Melbourne event, the Advanced Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport uh, that is on, on November 31st and the 1st of December this year. Uh, at the moment, there is less than 10 spots left to see the uh, all-star lineup of five fantastic sports physiotherapists talking all things uh, upper limb um, rehabilitation. So if you're keen to get on board, we suggest you get onto that ASAP. We're absolutely wrapped to have Edna on today's episode. Edna and his team at the Sports Surgery Clinic are doing some fantastic things in the space of athletic groin pain. He has a wealth of knowledge in the area, and I really enjoyed this chat with him, and I hope you do as well. Well, that's enough from me. Let's get into it. So, Edna, welcome. Nick, thanks very much for the, for taking the time to chat. Uh, we appreciate you coming on board. Uh, maybe to get us started, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, both uh, from a professional and personal side of view? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, professionally, I, I work in the sports surgery clinic in Dublin. I work as their their head of performance, which is a, a broadish title, covers three main areas. Number one is I am responsible for the clinical development of our staff. We have a, a large and growing staff here of uh, physiotherapists, strength and conditioning coaches and biomechanists. Um, and trying to develop an internal and, and external CPD program that sees uh, continuity of understanding across all different disciplines within the department but also trying to identify where our knowledge gaps are individually and as an organization and trying to put structures in place for that and number two is most of my clinical delivery is around our residential uh, services and um, so usually elite athletes uh, coming to spend uh, blocks of time with us for intensive rehab blocks principally around uh uh, lower limb uh, injuries, ACL, groin, uh, overuse tendinopathies, etc. Uh, and then number three is I'm involved uh, in our, our research output, uh, principally around um, ACL uh, rehabilitation and 3D biomechanics, which I just finished my uh, PhD in through the University of Roehampton with under Siobhan Strike and um, our athletic groin pain program. So we've, we've lots of change direction sports in Ireland, uh, lots of, of high training loads and, and not necessarily the most efficient mechanics. So very good for business, lots of knee injuries and lots of groin injuries to uh, to uh, to get stuck into and trying to come up with better answers for all the time. Um, from a personal point of view, um, a, a poor athlete in my day, Gaelic football was our main sport. 
um, but but retired now and out to pasture. Uh, I'm, I, my, my wife, Michelle, and I have three kids, uh, Ellie, uh, Ethan and Irla, all from six to two. So the house is pretty chaotic at the moment. But uh, good times, definitely young kids balance out the, the chaos at work and vice versa. So um, that, that's kind of where we're at at the minute. Very uh, sort of busy schedule by the sounds of things. Now, um, mate, as I sort of alluded to in our intro earlier, we are super excited to have you out to Australia to, to run through a few courses, one focusing on athletic groin pain, hip and groin pain, and two focusing on ACL rehabilitation. Uh, we're heading to Perth, Melbourne, and Sydney. Briefly, what can sort of those attending or those thinking of attending expect to um, hear from you at your courses? I'm extremely excited about about the trip. Um, I, I would have spent a, a good bit of time in Australia in my master's in, in Curtin University, so I have a lot of colleagues and friends in, in Perth and Melbourne and Sydney, um, and and and, and uh, professional colleagues like yourselves who we've had correspondence with over the last number of years. Um, the course is, I mean, certainly there's, there's a large amount of ACL and, and, and groin injury in, in, in those dealing in sports and athletes in Australia. It's trying to fill in the gaps from where our practice is currently and, and, and where we can enhance our outcomes with it. Um, that's partly around uh, sharing clinical expertise. We would have about 1,000 ACL reconstructions per year here in the clinic, probably about 400 athletic groin pain patients. So you develop... Uh, a lot of pattern recognition you see that the difficult cases and how to manage those and how, how, where things have gone well and not gone well and um, but also sharing our expertise and our research in terms of how our use of biomechanics and how our assessment and rehab interventions have been modified uh, and, and changed over time and, and the outcomes we've got with that um, and thirdly is we'll share what, what I've learned from my colleagues here and those that have come to visit in terms of rehabilitation strategies, exercise selection, motor control and development, strength and power and running and change direction mechanics that rather than looking at uh, any athlete regardless of their injury in terms of a specific measure, whether that's strength or motor control, that how we can try and break an athlete down to build them back up again as efficiently and as effectively as possible. And those that, that are attending the, the, the workshops will see a degree of continuity and approach in terms of how we look at ACL and how we look at groin um, and then trying to modify not necessarily our intervention based on the athlete or based on the injury, but modifying our intervention based on the athlete we have in front of us and how they're moving and what their individual deficits and requirements are uh, to try and get the most successful and efficient outcome. That's uh, well, certainly exciting for me. I'd love to hear that. Uh, and I, I know many other people will. So absolutely pumped to have you out, mate, and looking forward to that. No, it should be good. The last podcast we did on calf injuries, we presented a little bit of a case study to Shane Kelly and we had some excellent feedback on that. So we're going to attempt to do the same thing and this podcast is around athletic groin pain. So we're going to attempt to present you with an athletic groin pain case and uh, hopefully work through that into some rehabilitation and and get your views and insights. Uh, How does that sound? Yeah, sounds excellent. Beautiful. All right, so groin case is a 27-year-old professional soccer player with a four- to five-month history of groin pain. Initially insidious onset of right adductor pain, yeah, he continued to play and train for three months with increasing pain. The season completed and the athlete took prescribed rest and did some basic gym work for six weeks. However, attempting to run after this six weeks, his pain returned. Um, he now presents to you reporting a mainly dull fatiguing pain over the pubic region into his adductors, right greater than left, and up into the abdominals. When presented with this sort of overview, what are some key 
subjective information that you would like to obtain further from a patient that walks into your door with this? That's probably the, the classic presentation that we all tend to get, whether it's in an outpatient setting or, or working in a team environment, whereby even in a team environment, that the athlete tends to say, look, they almost don't present to you until the symptoms have reached a point where they feel actually this is beginning to impact on me day to day or performance wise. Um, subjectively, there's a couple of main areas you're looking for, both in terms of uh, from a differential diagnosis point of view, but also beginning to steer your initial uh, management. Uh, number one is their current level of irritability, how you begin to approach in season or out of season, a player who says, look, I, I'm a little bit sore the day after a match or if I have a heavy training week versus an athlete who says, I'm really, really sore when I did four or five sprints. The, the degree in irritability there is completely different and the amount of unloading or, or activity modification that's going to be required to begin to get on top of things might be quite different. Um, the second thing would be trying to get an idea of the main aggravating factors. Um, when athletes are, are particularly irritable, everything is sore. So it's a degree of difficulty in trying to differentiate. But very often they'll say, look, primarily it's when I go to decelerate and change direction or primarily it's those first three steps when I accelerate or it's when I reach max speed. And um, it'll begin to give you an idea of maybe which movement patterns or which uh, activities are the, the biggest driver of, of, of the development of symptoms or maybe how how their symptoms developed insidiously or uh, sorry, gradually at the beginning. And then by the time they present to you, often everything is sore and it can be harder to work out what was the main driver of why they're presenting the way they're presenting. Um, the third main thing will be what have they found, again, whether it's in their rehabilitation or in treatment they've had previously, what have they got benefit from? Often they'll say, look, when I do my core work, it bring, it worsens my pain. My pain gets worse doing that. Immediately that's saying, look, clearly abdominal control is contributing to the problem, but clearly what you're doing is not helping where you get there. Or I do my running mechanics and I actually feel so much freer for the couple of hours after that, or I feel I get through my training session much more. So beginning to get an idea of, okay, of the work that's been done already, where has money been made or where some profit made or maybe where not. And the fact that someone finds something very irritable when they're doing it is immediately something that I'm drawn towards because that pattern of movement is obviously a big contributor as to why you're doing what you're doing. And often what you'll find is people say, I avoid doing that because that aggravates my symptoms. When actually that's completely the wrong strategy. That's the number one area of focus where we need to delve into. Like someone who says, I, I don't don't lunge because I get knee pain. Well, immediately there's something about that or I don't squat because I get knee pain. There's something about that that we need to explore into further. So getting an idea of how irritable they are and, and what level of offloading I might have to do and also where they are in the season and what the priorities are. If grand final is in two weeks time versus I'm in the first week back in preseason, um, what we're going to do might be, might be quite different in terms of demands in the, in the short to medium term. Um, and what they felt has given them benefit uh, during rehab or during activity and what has made them worse and trying to think about how that's going to come into your assessment later on. Let's just uh, paint a bit of a picture and say this athlete is that guy who gets that pain with change of direction, uh, acceleration, you know, maybe maybe doesn't love, feels it throughout the whole session but can sort of battle through if he needs to, uh, wakes up in the morning with quite a bit of discomfort um, and let's say like uh, he's only been taking some anti-inflammatories and, and they make him feel a little bit better. Based on this, just moving forward, what are your key areas of your objective assessment? Um, really keen to touch on um, how you look at those biomechanical aspects with change of direction. Does this happen now or does this happen a little bit later? I suppose if we're breaking up our obje objective assessment, we probably want to split it in two. You don't have to split it in two, but for, for discussion purposes. Uh, number one is our objective assessment around our differential diagnosis. So our ability to identify the source of symptoms or, or very commonly the sources of symptoms. Um, and the main thing 
with our differential diagnosis is to decide if this is something that's for rehabilitation or not. Uh, is it something that's going to require input from other professions, whether that's injection or more specifically orthopedic intervention, as is probably or should be rarely the case? And um, it's a main case of is this something that is amenable or is going to be managed primarily through rehabilitation or not? Because by the time they present, very often they have multiple sources of symptoms. Um, and so it's very difficult to identify exactly and precisely where the pain is coming from. But also if I have three different diagnoses, does that require three different interventions or three different management strategies? Probably not. So we want to be very clear that in our differential diagnosis, we've identified the source of pain or sources of pain and that we feel that based on those diagnoses, this is something that would be amenable to management or will require further investigation, let's say for inflammatory diseases or some other uh, aspects that might require, require medical intervention as well. The second part then will come around the, I suppose if number one is identifying the source of pain, number two is identifying the source of the problem or, or why are we getting painful in that area. Um, the level of detail of assessment, I suppose, depends really on the, the area you're practicing in. Obviously, here in the clinic, when, we, when we've time for large reviews, we can go through everything with a fine-tooth comb. If you're in a private practice and setting, you might start off with examining a uh, range of motion, fundamental movement patterns such as squats, lunges, etc., strength around the hip and pelvis, and then progressing that forward then to measures of strength and power whether that's across individual joints or the entire kinetic chain but looking at your explosiveness and your plyometric ability and then taking that a step forward here further forward here in the clinic which is looking at the movement strategies we use while jumping and while producing those numbers uh, both on jumping and plyometric exercises running and change direction mechanics um, and any other sport specific activities that they may feel are are more highly provocative towards or present or driving their symptoms Let's jump back to um, source of pain. So uh, you need to determine that source of pain in this patient. Uh, he's now lying on your plinth. What are your key objective tests you're looking at here um, and how are you reading into those, such as whether it's a squeeze test or a crossover test, et cetera? There's three things you want to do. Number one is to reproduce the symptoms. Number two is palpate the site of those symptoms. And number three then is, if, if possible or if able, uh, confirm on radiology that there is pathology or where you think the diagnosis is relates to that um, and any one of those pieces on their own can lead you to I would not say a misdiagnosis but a lack of accuracy maybe in being in, in precisely identifying where the pain is coming from so for example the the squeeze test whether at 0 45 or 90 or the crossover test they're very poor diagnostic tests in terms of identifying specific structures uh, that uh, where symptoms are coming from. So if I have pain uh, on a zero squeeze, uh, that's loading the entire anterior pelvic ring. So if I'm positive in that test, uh, I'm no further to understanding where exactly the pain is coming from. If I'm negative on that test, well, I can say probably with a good degree of certainty that the adductors, the pubic bone, the hip flexors are probably not the source of my symptoms uh, initially. The second thing then is when you come to palpation, again, Palpation, especially in male athletes, is probably not an area that everyone is comfortable having a, a good route around and feel around. It's probably an area we get less practice on compared to knees and compared to ankles. Um, but very often our palpation skills around the hip groin and anterior pelvis are quite poor and our ability to identify individual structures 
can be quite challenging if we're not well practiced but also because the anatomy is quite overlapping if I'm pressing down on, on what feels like my, my pubic tubercle well there's a number of different structures I mean I can be palpating you could, if I'm sore there is that a pubic bone pain is that a rectus abdominis pain is it an adductor longus pain um, you can get multiple different structures that are, are tender at the same point um, and thirdly then is if I go and look at radiology in particular MRI um, I'm going especially in a change of direction athlete whether it's Australian rules or, or soccer etc I'm going to see a whole host of stuff and uh, the relevance of that to the individual presentation can be very difficult can be very different and nowhere is this more evident than we talk about FAI and and cam uh, lesions in 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 field athletes where there has probably been a a, a, a complete over identification of of anatomical variants in the hip joint uh, and to a lesser extent the symphys pubis over time uh, often leading to inappropriate management strategies so really what you're looking for is number one is can i reproduce your pain not can i really can i reproduce what you're describing as your primary uh, uh, source of pain and that can be done through your squeeze test your crossover test modified sit-up etc number two is using my my clinical palpation can i re-identify the exact point where you're saying this is my primary source of of of, of uh, symptoms, and using your clinical reasoning and your tests, you can be fairly accurate in terms of what your diagnosis is. But again, it's difficult to be. You can you can narrow the bucket list down in terms of what pathologies might be existing at that point. But to be truly uh, confirmational, you probably need additional radiology support to reconfirm what's present at that particular individual site. Now, do you think that gets complicated a fair bit for clinicians sometimes with groin pain, how we can have these multiple sort of pathologies and entities? Um, and how do we sort of navigate our way through that when, say, you know, we're thinking there is an adductor component, but there seems to be some other components as well? Yeah, the, the real thing when we're looking, again, it comes back to when we're looking for a diagnosis, what we want to really appreciate is, is this something for rehab or not? That, for me, is, is the primary thing we're looking to identify as part of our differential diagnosis, along with the severity of symptoms. Secondly, and independently, is we want to try and identify why is this athlete become symptomatic in this one or multiple structures. And so whether you felt it was more adductor or more pubic or more abdominal, in many ways, when it comes to your rehabilitation, that's you know, it's, it's utterly irrelevant because you can have multiple adductors or multiple pubic bones who uh, athletes who, who present in very, very different ways or might describe different aggravating and easing factors. And where we've gone wrong, where I and, and us as a profession maybe have gone wrong is identifying pathology and feeling the need to, to fix or intervene in that pathology, whether that's through injection or some form of repair or release without necessarily uh, understanding whether that's exactly where the pain was coming from or not. Or secondly, not identifying the drivers of why that structure or structures were becoming symptomatic. And so where there tends to, you know, be an over-elaboration of thought is around, well, you know, you think it's a bit of doctor and I think it's a bit pubic and someone else thinks it's a bit abdominal. And you go through the research and you get examination of or reporting of cohorts who are all playing the same kind of sports, but you're getting very different diagnostic groupings depending on who's done the research and, and what additional imaging they have had had available but from a rehabilitation point of view it shouldn't really matter because it's no closer to telling me why that athlete is where they are and what i need to do from an intervention point of view to get them back playing and participating pain-free at the, at the at their highest level so much of the confusion around whether it's a bit of doctor or a bit of donald you can nearly bucket them and we're, we're, we're undertaking a, a randomized control trial now with our colleagues in copenhagen and in oslo 
where we're really going to take all those that are tender in that general region and in, and look at different management strategies toward because it's much of a muchness and certainly within a club environment or a clinic environment you know even in in centers of excellence and, and expertise it's hard to get definitive you know consensus around this is exactly where the pain is coming from but from my point of view is from a rehab point of view it doesn't matter i'm no you know it's are you for rehab or are you not and if you are from rehab well let's now go on to phase two and identify why has this individual athlete become symptomatic as opposed to you're an adductor pathology well here's my adductor program well that may, might be it might be what you need it might be only a bit of what you need or it might be none of what you need and therefore, trying to manage someone by by diagnosis uh, is working off the assumption that every diagnosis is presenting for the same reason, which is, is painfully not the case. This episode of the SportsMap podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU, which was recently acquired by Viacon. Used by leading biomechanic researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. It's unlike GPS in IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load by two small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors which quantify three main things. The intensity of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry, and cumulative tibial load. I measure you works in military, pro and college coaches and athletes from around the world including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and Harvard University. If you want to know more about how iMeasureU can help optimise return to play for your athletes, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. Alright, so before we move on to um, stage two, we just touched on imaging there and, and obviously we've done our objective assessment uh, and our imaging has um, hopefully validated our thoughts based on that objective assessment. But often a lot of the time with MRI, we're getting reports of sort of bone mineral edema and, you know, and how relevant is this uh, to our groin pathology? Let's say as well, it's on most symptoms for this patient on his right side, but this bone marrow, bone marrow edema is on the left side. Do, do we take much away from that? Is it important for our clinical consideration? I, I don't really think so for, for, for a couple of reasons. Number one is, uh, and Australian rules is a good example, bone marrow edema or increased bone marrow edema has been shown to be present in asymptomatic athletes. So how much is too much or its relevance, it can be there as an incidental finding as much as anything else. Um, number two is, and you'll see this time and again in hip pathology where, where someone will have pain in, in, emanating from one hip and they'll have both hips MRI'd and, and the surgeon or the clinician will tell them, well, the other hip is just as bad as this hip, despite the fact that they've never had any issues whatsoever on the on the on the asymptomatic hip, and um, so again, trying to if if this if the present if the radiological presentation correlates with my objective findings, it should be confirmation around my diagnosis, and that then my my management strategy can be extrapolated from there. The finding incidental findings that don't correlate with my clinical objective measure probably have little or, or should have little or no impact in trying to decide what I'm going to do and how I manage going forward. And bone marrow edema is a good example in that, you know, everyone comes in reporting that, you know, the dreaded osteitis pubis. And, you know, it's it's like I was out at the weekend and I caught osteitis pubis. Um, rather, rather than necessarily a, 
an understanding of what it is, which is an imbalance in the loading and recovery of bone in the region. And that process is ongoing, as we can see in our asymptomatic athletes, in that sometimes they'll demonstrate what, what is reported as bone marrow edema despite being asymptomatic. But it's that imbalance of, of loading in the region or, or loading and, and time to recover between bouts of loading in the region. And so, again, it, it, it's useful to us in saying, is this something for, which is for rehabilitation, which in the, in the case of anyone presenting with bone marrow edema as the primary source of symptoms definitely is. Um, but it's no further closer to telling me, A, what my prognosis is, B, my, my severity of symptoms. So by looking at an MRI, you, you'll, again, rarely find good correlation between the severity of symptoms and the degree of the extent of, of, of prescribed pathology. But it's also not going to tell me why they've developed symptoms in that area and, and what my management strategy from a rehabilitation point of view is going to need to be. Okay, so for this type of patient, um, based on you, one of your articles, which we'll put in our show notes, um, do you recommend we use the term uh, pubic aponeurosis injury as a diagnosis here or, or not? And where does that fit in with, I guess, where we are right now? and obviously moving forward based on addressing our contributing factors? It's, it's an area we've been having you know, a lot of discussion with currently um, with our colleagues in, in Copenhagen in particular around you know, the, the labelling and, and nomenclature to, to, to the source of symptoms in, in the region. Um, again, the group that we've identified as pubic aponeurosis is where there was pain and palpation, reproduction pain and palpation, on that common attachment area between the rectus abdominis and the adductor longus and, and correlating pathology as evident in MRI at that point of presentation. Um, so whether we move towards that diagnosis or not, what we found and when we've had these discussions is that it didn't readily fit within what would be called the entity-based approach. And that's something that we're, we're working together with as, as, as a multi-center uh, collaboration at the minute to try and redefine um, a, the nomenclature in the area, but also B, the, the precision with which it's, it's reported from because it kind of didn't really fall, fall into inguinal, didn't really fall into a doctor, doesn't really fall into, uh, well, there is no abdominal group, but abdominal, let's, let's say abdominal and inguinal is together. Um, and yet for us, it was a very, very clear site of symptoms, uh, both on clinical examination, but also on, on radiology. But if you didn't have the radiology to support it, that very easily could have been called an adductor or very easily could have been called an abdominal. Um, so again, from our point of view, that's a, a, a minute discussion around the, the sources of symptoms in the area. And um, from a rehabilitation point of view, it's all the same. So whether you called it an adductor and I called it abdominal or something like that, that, is it for rehab or not? If it is, then let's move on to the next stage, which is right, why have they become symptomatic in the area? Where it causes a particular difficulty is that this group of athletes often are the ones that describe pain on coughing or sneezing or pain sitting up. They might have tenderness around the inguinal ring in spite of the absence of any true herniation. And these are a group that then get bucketed. When, you know, if you have pain coughing, all of a sudden you're some version of inguinal weakness or hernia, despite the fact that it's not present in the vast majority of cases. You know, If you have a herniation, you often see an athlete will say, I'm really sore on a Monday after a game. I have pain when I'm coughing, sneezing, pain getting out of bed. But by a Thursday, my coughing and sneezing pain is gone. So has the hernia gone on a Thursday and comes back every Monday after a game? Or is it there on an ongoing basis? And this is where, this is where you know, definitely discussion around the anatomy is really important because there are some of these athletes that are going for surgical intervention when, from our point of view, it's probably not indicated because this, A, the site of surgical intervention is probably not the site of symptoms. 
and B, they seem to be doing tremendously well with rehabilitation uh, on an ongoing basis. All right. So um, let's say this athlete is for rehab. So um, where, where do we go here? So uh, do you need to do any type of unloading pain reduction stage or are we uh, straight away going in and looking at their movement quality? I, I think that the first aspect is, is really trying to identify why they've developed their symptoms in relation to how they move. Um, and having a, 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 an assessment protocol that will give you a profile of that athlete. And that goes for any particular injury. It could be ACL, it could be hamstring, it could be whatever. Um, your, your groin profile may look at your uh, range of motion throughout the kinetic chain, your strength across individual joints, in particular around the hip and pelvis. But we found that, you know, the quads, hamstring and calf control and strength are also extremely important with how the hip, is, hip and groin are loaded. And taking that further and saying, look, based on those individual assessments, how does that look in terms of your force production, uh, either in terms of your explosive uh, strength or your plyometric strength? And are there deficits there side to side or in compared to, to, to club or standard uh, club or group averages? Um, and then thirdly is based on those assessments in the, in the clinical room, uh, and, and strength and power assessments how are you moving to produce those numbers uh, how are you moving in your running and acceleration how are you moving in your jumping and landing and how are you moving in your change direction and when we begin to examine all those pieces of the jigsaw we can begin to work a profile as to how this athlete is moving what they're moving how that may be contributing to why they're developing symptoms and it's important to look at throughout the entire piece of the jigsaw because just because I have certain strength deficits or not, that in no way tells me accurately how am I going to how my running mechanics are going to look or how my change direction mechanics are going to look. Just because I look in isolation at my change direction mechanics, that doesn't tell me whether the way I'm moving is, you know, a strength or power issue, whether it's more a motor control issue, whether it's more a fundamental uh, strength around an individual joint issue that is offloading those things. So if you want to solve the puzzle as quickly as possible, you need to identify all the contributing factors. I don't need to intervene on them all on the same day. I'm not necessarily, depending on the severity of symptoms, going to do everything um, within a one session. Uh, but I need to begin to draw up a to-do list and begin to prioritize how I'm going to address these factors symptomatically, systematically and comprehensively from now back to pain-free return to play. The bit around load management and medication really fits more within what's our priorities at the minute am i at the end of the season i just need to do enough to get by is this something that is extremely chronic and we as an organization or the player as an individual as i said i need to definitively put this to bed because rest and medication whether that's injection or anti-inflammatories they address the source of pain but they don't address the source of the problem and that that has two issues for us number one is if our symptoms are improving but that improvement isn't because of my rehabilitation program being effective. When the athlete goes to increase their load, training load again, the symptoms reappear. And this leads to a window of continual frustration. Or if I rest long enough from high-intensity exercises, my symptoms go away completely. But when I go back to pre-season or when I resume, my symptoms have redeveloped. Does that mean I've got re-injured? Or does that mean I haven't addressed the reasons why I developed that initial injury starting off with? And so areas around in my ideal scenario and um, how much you have to offload really comes back to how irritable that athlete is so if you have a player who's coming in and say look i'm a bit stiff and sore the day after a match but i can recover quick enough for you know on a sunday for a tuesday training session to participate fairly fully i will need to do very very little offloading to keep that athlete where they are while i'm current 
concurrently addressing their uh, rehabilitation deficits. If you have someone who is very, very symptomatic, but you know we're in the final season, we need to do what we need to get by. We, you know, you may use a uh, pain medication to assist that offloading as much as necessary, but as little as you can get away with to keep them competitive on the field or her competitive on the field, while also addressing factors. But actually, if you want to definitively and be most successful, pain medication or pain intervention, it 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 blinds us to how effective what we're doing is. And so what I often say to your athletes is pain is now your best friend. If you have pain when you're doing your exercise or pain, that's brilliant because that's telling us you're not doing it properly. If your pain is not improving every morning or every two mornings, that's brilliant because it tells us we're not being effective with what we're doing. And so pain is one of the most, where we talked about our pain provocation tests and our squeeze and our crossover being extremely effective in terms of differential diagnosis and you know reproducing symptoms, they're also extremely effective at identifying the efficacy of the progress of our rehab intervention. And so when you're talking about offloading and we're talking about pain management, that's actually really, I would suggest, more to do with the context of where we are in the season. But if we are not taking pain meds and our symptoms are just beginning to present after matches, I'd be inclined to hold on the pain medication and try to be as effective and as articulate as possible in my rehab so that I can see that I'm effective as opposed to I take pain meds and I'm asymptomatic, but then the player has no interest because they're no longer a pain and therefore it rears its head again four weeks later when we're even closer to final season. Or if you have someone who's really, really symptomatic and you want to get to the bottom of it or it's being very, very chronic in, in nature and presentation, I would say, look, we want to get a true picture of whether what we're doing is making a difference here. And, you know, it's not that we don't use uh, steroid injection anymore or don't use pain meds, but actually we find that it, it gets in the way of us rehabilitating athletes back as quickly as possible. Uh, so again, the discussion around pain intervention is more to do with where are we in the season and, and, and what is the priorities that invariably, especially in elite sport, are just part and parcel of participating at that level. But from a management point of view, the less we can use them, the more we get a true reflection of how effective and how efficient we're being at what we're trying to do in rehab wise. I'd love to get an example or you to run us through a little bit of what your movement analysis looks like. Um, but before you do that, can you give some examples on what those strength tests around the hip and pelvis that you do do and also those tests you use to look at sort of the plyometric ability and sort of um, explosiveness? Yeah, so my, my colleague Sam Beta, uh, um, a good South Australian, is currently doing his PhD uh, around athletic groin pain. I suppose we've looked primarily in our previous research around uh, the intervention of, of, of uh, the effectiveness of non-anatomy-driven anatomy uh, rehabilitation, but Sam is exploring that further, looking at individual uh, response to individual strength measures around the hip, namely uh, inner range hip flexion, inner range hip extension, ab and adduction, uh, using handheld dynamometry, but also looking at changes in explosiveness and plyometric ability through counter movement jumps and drop jumps and trying to see what are the differences compared to normal, what are the differences pre and post rehabilitation, but also is there a degree of variability within those measures that, that makes you more or less susceptible to either development of groin pain or the redevelopment uh, after successful return to play. Um, so our strength assessment, uh, depending again on, on, on the level of time you have, would be around certainly measuring strength in the hip in all three planes, uh, measuring the strength of the abdominals, whether that's through a, a double leg drop or some sort of rotational strength measure, uh, looking at the lower limb strength in particular around the knee. Uh, we would use isokinetic dynamometry uh, quite extensively, um, A, because we have availability, and also B, we have a huge amount of normative data around uh, strength measures. Um, 
and then taking that and putting it with counter movement jumps uh, for a measure of explosiveness and uh, double and single leg drop jumps for a measure of explosiveness and plyometric ability to try and develop that strength and power profile uh, as, a, as a fundamental or initial base. And it's from there then we would move on to the kinetic and kinematic analysis. Now onto that analysis, um, run us through that. Obviously, it was a really interesting paper uh, looking at the uh, the findings around the three different clusters of movement. Uh, so I'd love you to sort of yeah take us through your approach to this in a more clinical analysis. Yeah, I suppose the clusters and we carried out a, an analysis of what we want to look at. Most movement analysis, uh, whether it's ACL or groin, whatever, tends to look at how the group moves. So if you have a group of groin pain patients how do they move? And in reality, they probably all move slightly differently. And so cluster analysis allows you to identify patterns of movement within a cohort, whether that's a normal cohort or an ACL cohort or a groin cohort or whatever. And we identified three specific clusters of, of, of movement um, that had greater or, or lesser loss of, of hip and trunk control relative to the, to the stance leg. Um, and the main, the, I suppose the two main interesting findings for this were, number one, was that there was no relationship between um, your anatomical diagnosis or, or the name that we had put on the source of your symptoms and your cluster membership. So just because you were in a doctor-related groin pain, I had no idea what movement strategy you were going to use for, 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 for change direction. So beginning to, to tease into, well, look, at just because I know where your pain is coming from doesn't mean I have any idea how you're moving and or conversely just because you're in cluster one i have no idea where your symptoms are, or, or symptom or multiple source of symptoms are coming from so maybe we need to look at the individual athlete movements rather than the diagnostic uh, criteria and number two was how these movements change pre to post uh, and how they differ compared to normals and this is data that we we have coming out uh, at the minute with a couple of colleagues shane gore who's just finished his, his um, phd on the biomechanical changes after athletic groin pain um, and Shane's work has identified probably two main factors. Number one is that whether we are a healthy athlete or whether we are a groin pain athlete, we tend to be quite consistent in our cluster membership. So if you tend to change direction in a certain cluster, a certain pattern, you tend to do that quite consistently. He's finding somewhere between 85 and 90% of the time you will change direction. So we're, we're quite stable in the movement pattern we use to change direction. The second one was we found that the three movements, the three particular movement strategies were also present in healthy athletes, but we found that there was a much higher proportion of athletes in cluster three, uh, which is namely the one where they, there's less trunk side flexion, less hip rotation, et cetera. So what, what you would say was less loss of control if you're trying to put a, a layman's or a, a clinical terminology on it. Um, and that's really interesting for two reasons. Uh, sorry, to add upon that further then, we found that pre to post rehabilitation, that the, the improvements in biomechanics or the changes in biomechanics for each cluster were very specific to the cluster. So what related the biomechanical changes in cluster one in respect to the biggest changes in HAGOS were unique to that cluster. So how they changed relating to improvement of symptoms was not the same as how cluster two changed and how, how cluster three changed. So there is an individuality of, 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 of response to rehabilitation, but also an individuality in terms of what each cluster needs to try and go from a symptomatic point of view to an asymptomatic point of view. And that's not related to where your pain is coming from. Um, the other interesting point is that there are a proportion, obviously, of healthy athletes who are in clusters that we would suggest are, are less efficient. Um, and this has always been the, 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 the tricky point with athletic groin pain because it's not only about how you move, it's obviously how much you load. If you never play a sport or you never play a change of direction sport, your, your incidence of 
of athletic groin pain is probably going to be quite low. Um, and so actually, we just had a paper that we released on social media yesterday where my colleague Chris Richter was looking at using biomechanics to try and, and, and uh, accurately predict membership of an ACL limb versus a normal limb. And what he found was that biomechanics was very useful in seeing whether you were an ACL or not, but also that there's a proportion of normal or healthy athletes that don't move normally. So they are these that, 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 that display patterns that are consistent with being an ACL, even though they've never done their ACL. And that doesn't mean that they won't go on to do their ACL, maybe you know, similar in groin pain. If they were to train long enough, hard enough, or if their anatomy was slightly different, maybe they are the guys and girls that will go on to develop symptoms for us. So again, it's very important not to put all our eggs in one basket and say, look, this is the one movement we want, because it's far, far, far more multifactorial than that. But where we can use cluster analysis or movement analysis is that, look, on average, asymptomatic athletes tend to present in one particular pattern compared to clusters, those with groin pain. That relationship in groin pain patients has nothing to do with where your diagnosis is coming from. So you, again, you want to start to focus more on how you're moving, not where your pain is coming from. And the individual responses are very different between clusters. So by saying that, well, you've an adductor, I expect all my doctors to, to, to uh, you know, move or change the same pre and post intervention is probably inaccurate. Um, and when you're looking at healthy people, it's very hard to know what healthy is. So I'm healthy today, but does that really mean that I'm healthy? We see lots of people that come into clinic or in the club and thinking, how have they not got injured yet? And yet, whether it's because of their genetics or their load tolerance or how they build things, they seem to be able to keep going on a consistent basis, where we have the other guys and girls who just seem to go from episode to episode to episode on an ongoing basis. And that's ultimately what we're looking to target with cluster analysis. Okay. Now, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you guys, um, you do it in a, in a 3D camera set up and that's looking at a 110 degree cut. Is that correct? Yeah, we we have a, a battery of tests of which, from a, an academic point of view, the 110-degree cut is our main uh, cut, but we'd also have a unplanned or reactive 90-degree cut as well. Cool. So if I was in the clinic and I've got access to an oval, is there any way I can sort of replicate and look at this sort of stuff without that type of technology to help me with my analysis? I mean, the number one thing is the vast, vast, vast majority of people will not have access to 3D biomechanics. Um, where it's of particular use to us is when we are assisting third parties and player management to try and offer some objectivity to it. So rather than I say he's leaning a bit to the left, uh, that you can put some numbers to that and compare it to normal cohorts. Um, but also from an academic point of view, they can begin to explore our biases and our clinical practice to see, well, are we changing what we really think we're changing? But for the vast majority of people, especially with the proliferation of iPads and video technology and apps to assist that, nearly everyone can do some form of, of kinematic analysis uh, with their athletes, either on the oval or, or within the clinic to spend the space they have. The main thing is trying to identify the gross movement patterns, whether that's you pick a, a 180-degree cut or a 90-degree cut, and trying to set up the videos or have a look yourself at what are the main areas we're looking for. And really, it's that control of the trunk relative to the stance leg and the, that control of femur on, on pelvis or pelvis on femur rotation as we decelerate and as we re-accelerate to push off in the direction of intended travel. And they seem to be the two things that clinically and, and, and from a research point of view are the, the low-lying fruit in relation to change direction mechanics of those that are presenting with groin pain compared to, the, to those that don't and, and the changes that happen pre to post-intervention. Veld Performance are doing some fantastic things to improve human measurement through the development of their laboratory-grade technology built for everyday use in the field. 
Their equipment that includes the likes of the Nordboard, groin bar, Forstex and human track provide objective measurements that are accessible to practitioners and athletes for whenever and wherever they need it. Veld Performance Athlete Testing Systems are trusted by over 500 of the world's most elite sporting teams, clinicians, universities and defence departments. Born out of research here in Australia at the Queensland University of Technology in 2015, Veil Performance has a fantastic team of sports scientists, researchers, clinicians, designers, developers and engineers, all who are dedicated to improving human measurement. Learn more about Veil Performance at veilperformance.com. Taking us back a little bit to that clinical presentation of this athlete. Um, now he is for rehab and we've gone through our analysis. I guess based on your experience, what type of impairments do you find in this type of athlete? Um, and then from a strength and movement quality, and then how do you address it uh, from a rehab point of view? The, the, you can almost split it into three. Um, you will have very strong athletes, uh, bilaterally strong athletes, who have what I suppose we would call quite inefficient movement patterns and maybe high-intensity tra- high, uh, high training loads. Or you may have other athletes who have quite large asymmetries in strength, and that asymmetry in strength then is further uh, identified in their landing mechanics and their change direction mechanics. So what you'll find is they'll have weakness across individual joints, uh, very commonly hip abduction, hip extension, but also abdominal, especially unilateral external oblique uh, and, and ilio, inner range iliopsoas. Um, again, I can't say that there's a consistency between it, but there are areas that either collectively or individually, tend to be quite commonly present with deficits. You'll find they'll very commonly have deficits in their single-leg plyometric ability. Their ground contact times and reactive strength are very commonly down. Those deficits in strength and control tend to manifest themselves in their running mechanics, where you either get a lot of pelvic drop during mid-stance, maybe a lot of rotation towards the symptomatic side during swing-leg mechanics or during kicking mechanics or during change direction mechanics where they have really, really long ground contact times with a, a large sway of their center of mass towards the direction of intent. We're, we're watching each other and sort of mimicking, but that's kind of a sway of one side across to the other, whereby they're, they're I mean, collapsing into either a more hip impingement pattern or loading the medial groin, the abductors in particular, uh, more uh, the abductors more eccentrically before accelerating, pushing off. And so... It's, it's when someone says, look, I, I have a diagnosis of pubic bone edema or, or a ductal related groin pain, I have no idea before I assess them what package of impairments they're going to present with. Um, it literally, every time I try to go to my, my, my personal favorites or you're, you're, you're trying to give them what, what, what consistently is different, they're the athletes that don't tend to get better. And you see it very often in club environment where we'll take what worked for that athlete with the same diagnosis and we'll apply it to this athlete. He got better really quickly. Why the hell is this? pain in my, in, my, in my ass not coming around and improving as, as much as beforehand. And it's because of uh, either, number one, not identifying the individual factors to that athlete, or number two, not selecting and progressing and coaching and constraining the exercises to get the effective changes that you're looking for. Obviously, moving through the rehab process, um, you're, you're addressing these things. And I, I guess from a visual point of view, I direct our listeners to your video series, which we actually have on our website now under resources, which shows some great examples of some progressive rehabilitation exercise in that space you've just mentioned. Um, when are you happy to say, get this athlete back to running and, and back to multi-directional change of direction um, with intensity? Do you need to see certain clinical markers? Um, what strength things are you really wanting to see um, marry up? 
it will depend a little bit on, on where they are in the season and their priorities. But let, let's assume this is an athlete who wants to get this right and is just going to take it as far as they need to take it, as opposed to has a, has a big game at the weekend they need to play. Um, you're, you're looking, we would very much, uh, we're looking for two things. Number one is, is a, a change in the pain provocation test. And, and we would incre- add load incrementally or add intensity incrementally as they respond. But also, two, looking for changes in our objective measures that we feel are, are driving why they're developing symptoms in the area. Um, as as, a, you know, as a, a gross marker, we would use a pain-free squeeze at 45, sorry, a pain-free crossover test um, as a, a sign that symptoms have, have subsided to a level where beginning running mechanics and, and, and running volume should be appropriate. Uh, a pain-free squeeze at 45 with, with resolution of any hip internal rotation asymmetries as a sign that I'm ready to, it's sufficient to start some change direction mechanics. Um, and then obviously a resolution of, of, of all our pain provocation tests before we head back into a, a full training pattern and um, a full training load. However, those changes in symptoms may either push on ahead or lag behind what we feel are the physical deficits that are driving the symptoms. And so it's very important that in parallel, we're seeing daily and weekly improvements of what we feel our main markers are. And um, because very often you'll have athletes whose symptoms have subsided extremely quickly, despite the fact that their physical deficits have not caught up. Maybe they've got a bit excited. Maybe it's that time of the year and they've gone to go back up again. Their training loads come back up and their level of symptoms are less than they were beforehand, but they've redeveloped symptoms again. Now, is that because they didn't give it long enough or is it the fact that they didn't change what they needed to change to an extent needed for the level of participation that, that they're acting at. So trying to say that you're never going to hold a pain-free athlete back from participation. You're going to you know, allow them, to, especially an elite athlete, they're going to get back to play as quickly as possible. The key is that as their training load comes back up again, am I continuing to make inroads and progress on the main deficits? And the speed of that recovery is going to depend very, very much on what those main deficits are. So for example, let's say it's someone presenting with groin pain, maybe a previous ACL injury, and they have a, a 30% strength weakness in quadriceps one side compared to the other. That's not going to be a two-week resolution with all the best will in the world or someone who has a, a 30% counter movement jump deficit. That's going to take a degree of time. If you're someone who has quite good symmetry of strength and power measures, but their motor pattern is a, is a large pelvic drop in mid-stance running or trunk sway with change direction, they can be changed extremely quickly by providing the right constraint-based drills and the right motor, motor patterning drills to, to get changes over time. So again, the presentation of symptoms and the resolution of symptoms is very much driven how quickly can I change what I feel the main factors are that are driving your symptoms. And if you've qualities that take longer to, to, to change, such as strength, such as power and plyometrics versus you know deep hip control or, or mid-stance running mechanics, which can be changed very, very, very quickly, that's going to influence how quickly your load tolerance is going to change over time. Nice. And you answered my follow-up question within that as well. So I'm wary of time because you have uh, patients waiting shortly. But um, when it comes to that running mechanics and I'll throw in change direction mechanics there, what are some of your key cues or key teaching points that you use for these type of athletes that you're really trying to um, get out of them? Yeah, I suppose um, a lot of my my 
redevelopment of mechanics has been has been guided or taken from dynamic systems theory and, and constraint-based learning um, in particular from 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 Franz Bosch and, and colleagues like that and um, it, it you what you're looking for is to put them in a position where the pattern emerges so for example let's say we take a, a pelvic drop in mid stance so can they assume that position uh, either you know slowly can they assume that position at speed can they assume that position through transitions can they assume that position through perturbation so always having the drill at a level that is allowing them to achieve it 60 or 70 percent of the time but providing enough chaos uh, that a, it, it can't be a cognitive uh, cognitive i'm not going to tell them look at don't let your pelvis drop because number one it's a poor way to develop motor learning but also it's a poor way to retain learning as as time goes on same with your change direction mechanics if you get someone who who trunk sways a lot towards the ipsilateral leg i'm not going to tell him don't sway your trunk because a he may or may not be able to do that B, it's highly unlikely to change between sessions, and B, it's definitely not going to change when he goes back into the chaos. So if I can get him to hold a dowel overhead or a stick overhead and to tell him to keep the stick really rigid as he carry out the task, number one is he'll find it very, very demanding. But number two is the only way he's going to be able to do that is by improving the stiffness around his trunk during those change direction activities. So again, I mean, the fun part of what we do is trying to find new drills and new exercises. It's not that there's one action that, that, that fits all. And certainly those those changes are underpinned by their physical qualities so if you have someone who's you know low ankle stiffness and uh, maybe strength deficits lateral hip strength deficits that's going to take longer to change in in terms of let's say a mid-stance pelvic drop than someone who doesn't have those deficits where you can just pattern them out of it really really quickly so again the drills in their own the motor control drills or the, or the, the higher intensity drills higher mechanical drills are underpinned by the physical qualities that allow that athlete to change those drills. And so if my drill isn't constrained enough or, 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 or problematic enough, it's unlikely that pattern will emerge as efficiently as we would like. But also if they don't literally have the base physical quality around hip strength, quadricep strength, or, or power or plyometric ability, especially eccentric rate of force development during the change direction mechanics, I can do drills all day long, but they're not redeveloping really that, that, that base quality that's needed in order to change direction at speed and under high demand. You've really taken us through a stage step-by-step -step process there with sort of key markers along the way, uh, but we want to get this player back to sport. Um, by the sounds of it, you know, you really marry up those criteria along the rehab process, but is there any final little thing that you tend to want to see uh, before return to sport, whether it's a capacity test or, or whether it's volumes or loads or anything that you really think is a, a final important point? Yeah, I, I think it's a very good point is, is that, you know, sport or positional specific demands um, so you can take um, football as an example or soccer as an example the demands on a fullback or a goalkeeper is going to be much less in terms of high speed running and change direction than it's going to be on a midfielder it's going to be much different in AFL than it's going to be on uh, rugby league or rugby union for example so having an idea of the level of demand that they need to go back to is going to be very important and where their current load tolerance sits compared to max demands, not only within a game, but also within a training week. Um, and so having those numbers and figures as accurately as possible, which isn't always possible depending on the level of exposure or the, the team support you have within your organization or clinic, but having an understanding of load-wise, how much running you're tolerating now versus load-wise, what you you need to go back to to be fully clear, that's very important. Having uh, an ongoing monitoring of those pain pro provocation uh, tests that we're keeping a close eye that there's no changes. Very often they'll find that their squeeze tests change before they report becoming symptomatic or you know during participation. Uh, and then ensuring that our objective measures around 
strength, power, running mechanics and change direction mechanics that are continuing to transition on an ongoing basis because we see loads of athletes who have what we would describe probably as, as quite inefficient running mechanics or, or quite large strength deficits who have absolutely no groin pain. Um, but they might present with ankle pain or they might present Achilles pain or, or, or symptoms somewhere else. So there's no perfect measure. No one's ever strong. We're only having this discussion yesterday around ACL rehabilitation. Like, when are you finished? You're never finished. You're just at a level where we think you're back to baseline and everything after. So everyone wants to be stronger. Everyone wants to be faster. Everyone wants to be uh, uh, more fatigue resistance in the demands of the game. The question is, where's ground zero? And then how can I consistently build upon that? Um, and that can be a bit of a, ch- a challenge in relation to groin pain. Um, mate, that's a fantastic run through of some athletic groin pain rehab and clearly uh, shows an extensive amount of knowledge and uh, I'm personally excited to hear further from you when you are out in Australia. Um, my final question to you is just a little bit about yourself, I guess. I'm really keen to know who are some of your key influences on your career um, and those that have guided you or those that you maybe look to now to sort of continue to learn off. You'd given me a heads up about this question. Actually, it's something that's that's very useful to sit down every now and again and just see the, the journey you've come on and wherever else. Um, obviously, I, I mean, you're hugely influenced by who you work with from day to day, um, whether that's from a sports medicine point of view. Obviously, Andy Franklin Miller and Ana Falvey are, are two of, of my colleagues here that we've learned a lot from, from an anatomical and diagnostic point of view. Um, from a biomechanics point of view, uh, Chris Richter and Kat Daniels, but also colleagues that we've had collaborate with us over time, um, such as Greg Meyer, JB Moran, Peter Wayand, um, and then experts, I suppose, in strength and conditioning. Neil Welch is our head of rehab here, and we've had some fantastic coaches and clinicians come and join us. That you know, you're trying to create an environment where you know what you know, um, and you're you're open enough to identify where your weakest link is. Uh, but certainly, as I said, in terms of motor learning and, and, and coaching, the likes of Franz Bosch and Nick Winkleman and guys like that, um, I, I've learned an awful lot from them as well. But uh, often you find, especially when working with elite teams, um, whether it's the AFL or Premier League or whatever, it, it, it's a constant learning process. I, I find that you know when you're interacting, especially with high-level clinicians, it's always a two-way process. I, I've yet to have a visitor where we haven't taken something from it uh, on an ongoing basis. So I don't think it's an ever-ending. I think every interaction has an opportunity to, to inform you if you have the uh, lack of ego or, or, the, or the self-restraint to just sit back a little bit and see, actually, there's, there's, A, there's other ways of doing things, or B, maybe my, my, my method is flawed and biased and I, I need it because ultimately on Monday morning, we all have the same problems. How can we get this athlete back as quickly as possible? Um, so the, the more open you are, the more uncomfortable it is, but certainly uh, the, the, the better your learning process will be. Uh, once again, we really appreciate your time. Fantastic insight uh, into your extensive knowledge and really open with sharing that information. So we really appreciate that. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you in Australia, mate. Appreciate it. Look, looking forward. Thanks very much, Nick. Mm-hmm.